and welcome to the Deep Sea Podcast, a punk take on a science podcast about everything deep sea. I'm Dr. Thomas Lindley, and I have COVID. <laughs> and with me, as ever, is the Professor uh, Alan Jameson. You're right, mate. I'm good. I don't have COVID. Well done. I, I strongly recommend that as your as your lifestyle choice. I've, I've been around it. I've had lots of it in the house, but it just doesn't seem to get as far as me. I don't know why. I've been doing really well so far. I've definitely been exposed. And then this, this one snuck by, unfortunately. And I don't know why it's so popular, because I can't recommend it. Three out of ten would cannot recommend uh, as a good time. Oh, well. Couldn't help to a nicer guy. <laughs> Well, yeah. it's about time somebody spoke about it. You know, somebody warned the world. What, what's this COVID thing you're talking about? What's that? Oh, it's this new fad. Uh, like everyone's this? doing it. It's gone viral. Oh, that's bad. That's a proper dad joke. Oof. Yeah. Yeah. It's good, actually. <laughs> it's so bad, it's good. It's like come full circle. Are you sure it's not donkey pox? The, the child has uh, the chicken-flavoured ones, the, the traditional pox, uh, which was a great combo thing. So both, both parents levelled with covid we have the bonus chicken pox so we have an itchy furious toddler with two exhausted parents like medically chronically exhausted parents um so it's good times it's good times right now i'm not coming to your house i don't know <laughs> just riddled with yeah it. just it's really good old days you just put a nail a plank of wood across your door and write something horrible on it and that's it yeah go sort of old plague plague style leave yeah. coins in a little basin of vinegar there you go that that's a deep cut oh. if, anyone, if anyone gets that reference know their plague stories oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's your soundtrack alan what's playing in your brain give me some tunes Ooh, to get me this through. week oh this week i've gone i've gone a bit retro all oh, right nice uh, yeah i think i was going too angry there for a while so yeah it was my birthday last week somebody got me a book the dirt by motley crew oh, nice. inspired me to go revisit some old motley crew albums nice of which the best one was the one that was nothing to do with motley crew so it's 1994 self-titled album brilliant it was <laughs> So I would say the soundtrack this week is definitely Hooligan's Holiday. Love it. Nice. Okay. 1994. 1994. Yeah. Well, it was interesting time for music. 1994. Early 90s. Grunge and Nine Inch Nails and all that kind of stuff came along. Forced all these ridiculous hair metal bands to grow up a bit. <laughs> they all produced great albums that everybody hated, and then no one spoke about them again for 25 years. Do you have any personal updates in the last month? What have you been up to? What have I been up to? That's a good question. Mm. Hmm. It was my birthday, like I said. If you still haven't said happy birthday. Happy birthday, Alan. It was in my calendar, but the reminder didn't go off. I do apologise. Yeah, it's very convenient. <laughs> well, this month has been a busy one uh, for all sorts of reasons. Mostly organising the removal of furniture in and out of my new office space, which is fascinating. I could I could do a whole podcast on, on, on trying to source secondhand furniture within a university campus and then not turning up. It'd be a fascinating half hour. Yeah, I've been finding it all sorts of other random things. So, so the guys on Pressure Drop have just found the Samuel B. Roberts, which is a, one of the vessels that sank in the Battle of Samar. So that's pretty cool, which is now beating last year's record of now the deepest shipwreck ever found. Oh, wow. Uh, oh, that's pretty big. I wasn't there. I don't actually know much about it. But they, yeah, they did find it last week. So that's kind of cool. Interesting to see what comes of that. Uh, apparently there were reports of lots of uh, live ammunition lying around, so it's a bit... <laughs> bit of a back out slowly. <laughs> a bit sketchy mm. driving the summer around, but there's all sorts of weird stuff going on in the morning, right? and this has got nothing to do with my day job. Uh, one of which I got approached by a certain bunch of people involving NASA who were asking if we could use the ship to go looking for an interstellar meteorite that landed in the Pacific. I don't know if the location's classified or not, but let's say in the Pacific somewhere, which is like looking for a needle in a haystack full of broken needles. But uh, 
Also, it's the start of a film, isn't it? Because it's glowing and then it cracks yeah, open yeah, and then I mean, something comes out. Yeah, and there was sort of this, this, this Emmanuel chain. You could read these NASA guys all sort of like talking about whether or not the thing's just been on 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 entry to the, into the atmosphere. It's just broken up into particle size, and one guy reckons it's the size of a basketball. And we're like, uh, how do you find a basketball in the Pacific? <laughs> you know, like, a basketball that looks like a rock. <laughs> yeah, but they also think it's either interstellar meteorite or it might be a long distance interstellar probe from another civilization. So at that point, we're like, no, nah, we're out. <laughs> Maybe you you can't share this, but are they that open about that in the in the email? Because there's some yeah. there's some really interesting UFO sort of declassification stuff going on right now. It's a weird, like backdrop to all of the terrible other news. Is some interesting UFO stuff. But wow, I'm actually quite like in the dinosaurs at the moment. You into your dinosaurs? Well, this is this whole thing of me trying to learn Twitter because I want to give some people jobs. I'm just stalking them, but. Uh, I befriended Tyler Greenfield, who was on the podcast. Well, he's back. great, isn't it? By doing that, I've opened up. I've opened up a whole new sort of dimension of dinosaurs and people who draw dinosaurs. Yeah. And it's, it's the only thing on Twitter that I actually it's like. It's brilliant, isn't it? It's just like wow, just it's really just good art. Dinosaur. Yeah, all of the marine stuff and all the deep sea stuff I hate, but the dinosaur stuff's brilliant. Do you remember the um, the lesson I learned though? What? That as soon as they start using bikini girls or anime girls for scale that's when you've gone too far into the paleo art. When you get that far, that's when oh, to okay. stop, okay? So it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And All the right. first, like, bikini lady used for scale, that's when you stop. Because it, it only gets weirder after that. You've gone too far into the internet yeah. at that point. I'm quite like dinosaurs. Hmm. I'm just trying to work out how I can merge the two things, like deep sea and dinosaurs. Because you don't get much of a fossil record that deep sea do. Well, I think there's a, there's a legit place here, because it's the paleo art you like, which are trying to accurately represent animals that we don't have a full picture of. And we don't have a full picture of a lot of deep sea critters because of, you know, we just know them from samples and they're damaged. So I'd be well up for like paleo art style deep sea critters known from only one damaged sample kind of thing, which we've kind of been trying to do. And and then a bikini girl for scale. That's important. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Also, on top of like, finding shipwrecks and finding meteorites and finding graveyards, apparently Ocean Infinity are going to go look for the Malaysian airliner again. So I was kind of really hoping this time they find it so I get this guy off the back. <laughs> Even if they find it, it's He's still at it's it. going to be... It's going to be a cover-up, even if they find it, even if everything is solved, it's not going to be yeah. enough for some folk who've made a career out of it. Yeah, they will have moved it, right? I would have moved it, I would have dragged it somewhere else so they could find it, you know. So. I had a little check up on him today for the first time in six months to see what, if, he's, if he's maybe calmed down a bit yet. Or, but nah, he's gone absolutely stratospheric. <laughs> they tend to escalate rather than calm It's funny because... It, He's been tweeting all these things, showing them this bathymetry that I gave him, which I totally didn't give him because I had an absolute blanket ban on giving this nutcase anything. And he's got it from somewhere. He's telling Twitter that yeah, he got it from me and he's had it analysed by an image analyzer expert who's declared that they're 100% photoshopped. <laughs> and it's like, it's, it's just a fracture zone, right? There's nothing in it. So he's, yeah, of course it's 100% photoshopped because it's not a photograph. It's a it's a screen grab of a multi beam. You know what I mean? Of course, it looks like it's photoshopped. You numpty. You can't take a photograph of a fracture zone. <laughs> it's like he's such an it's idiot. that it's that pixels thing oh, that yeah. came up, isn't it? Like when we talked about the the shapes yeah. on the seabed, it's like, oh, look at this. This is too too straight to be natural. It's like yes, because human software is rendering it on a grid. So your Photoshop expert yeah. is looking for pixels in a thing made of pixels. <laughs> 
He still hasn't noticed that his airplane wing is about 800 metres long. But anyway. I wish you'd tell him that, because he's really doubled down on, on his plane that's enormous. No, nah, nah. But it's the done thing. If you do a figure, you've got to put a scale bar on there. Do you think he knows? He's worked out the scale, it's yes. just like, uh-oh, never mind, double down, double down. I think he knows exactly what he's doing. Mm. I think he knows exactly what he's doing, but it's, it's that thing where he gets a few likes off of another few like-minded idiots, and that's enough to keep him happy, so... Anyway, changing the subject completely. Can I riff off the back of that? Because weirdly, one of my little adventures this month is I spoke at, well, I was part of a panel at the International Humanist Conference in Glasgow, and we spoke about uh, conspiracy theories and alternative facts and sort of science communication and what we can do to try and stem the tide of those. So that felt weirdly apt. Because it's something I'm fascinated by, and you know, this, this whole project is about making science accessible and trying to communicate real science while humanizing the scientists at the same time a little bit it was it was really interesting discussion about how we can combat things like this but they they work in the same way as cults basically the the very first thing any of these theories do is to isolate from the rest of sort of provable facts so the first thing they do is to say that everything else is a lie so then it's a it's an insulated truth yeah. thing. So you you can't provide the evidence that will change their mind because it's just more evidence of a lie. And unfortunately, once you pass that like event horizon, that's when you just spiral, spiral, spiral. Did you ever conclude what the best strategy was to just shut up and let these people say whatever they want? Or it depends if you've got the mental energy to do it, and it depends if you're trying to rescue the person at the center of it because it's weird now it's all online so are you trying to rescue the person at the center of it or are you trying to rescue members of the audience because that's the difficult thing like often these people are kind of a lost cause in themselves or at least you're not going to do anything that's going to pull them out of it only they can do that but there are going to be silent people observing that interaction who may be getting more and more swayed so you you can't save the person who's already gone past the event horizon basically but there are will be curious people orbiting and it's if they end up in that echo chamber, then they'll never hear an intelligent sort of pushback. But if you have the mental energy for it, the, the sort of basic conclusion is to not mock or, or call anyone stupid because nobody really responds Uh-oh. to that. I know. I've already called him an idiot about four times in the last 10 but, minutes. But, you know, if he's, if he's beyond, beyond the event horizon, then, uh, then that might be fine. Uh, but yeah, it's just asking questions because all of these supposedly simple explanations, when you actually run them through as a like scenario it's like okay then it's this so how does that work and how are these hundreds of thousands of people kept quiet and how does this bit work and and to be honest once you once you don't fight it but almost do a do like improv do a sort of yes and you just sort of join in um this supposedly simple solution then becomes like really really wacky and complicated flat earth thing that is based on the whole i don't see a curve and it doesn't make sense to me that we live on a ball. And that seems like a really simple solution. It seems like a simpler solution than the whole way our galaxies set up and things like that. But when you actually think, okay, well, how does the sun set? What is the sun? You know, as soon as you start actually exploring that thing they've created, their very simple solution requires far more leaps of faith and leaps of probability than our actual scientific understanding you know they always premise it as the simpler explanation but then if you just let them run with it once you're into the basement layer of uh, giant ice walls and the rich are hiding utopia on the other side of them and fun stuff i mean we've, we've sailed across the bits that are supposedly not joined up and we didn't fall off anything no fun times anyway changing the subject completely 
I've got a great paper for you. I think it was out this week. The title's called Alien Species Invasion of Deep Sea Bacteria into Mouse Gut Microbiota. Whoa. Okay, a lot to unpack there. I thought it was like, why? Well, what, what's that about? And it's exactly what it says in the title. <laughs> so I'm giving it away. Some the title. Took, they reckon nine of 106 deep sea bacterial samples from sediment alter the gut bacterial communities of mice and induce all sorts of strange things, mostly inflammatory symptoms. So, yeah, that's what the paper's about. So I, I read it thinking, okay, so if you put if you put deep sea bacteria into a mouse, it can cause all sorts of problems and lots of inflammatory things going on and liver damage and glucose metabolism deterioration and everything else. And as I was reading this, I was thinking, oh, geez, like how much deep sea bacteria has been through you and I? <laughs> <laughs> Might explain a lot, actually. <laughs> I don't remember having liver damage. At well, least not from bacteria. Yeah, it's nicely masked by another hobby of yours. <laughs> wow. I mean, on the very face of it, yeah. is that is it all immune response related? Because like the kind of the too long didn't read version of that is you expose a mouse to novel bacteria and they have a, an immune response. But the, the third highlight is the deep sea sediments containing the bacteria destroying the health of mice were distributed in hydrothermal vents, ocean basins and hadal trenches of the Indian Ocean. The Atlantic and the Pacific. Oh, we've we've linked all. So I guess those. we just got to make sure that the mice don't end up on a hydrothermal vent. We've got to stop drinking. We've got to stop drinking seawater from the bottom as well, because clearly that's not a clever thing. To oh, but it's all right. We put absinthe in it. All right, it's okay. Uh, it's not like you know. I'm the picture of health today, aren't I? It's all going fine. Yeah, it's nice. It's not. It's not like you ever get sick. No. <laughs> if there's any uh, hydrothermal vent, ocean basin, or hadal trench scientists out there uh, who have pet mice. <laughs> Yeah, go and wash your hands. Yeah. Oh, does it just affect mice then? Are we okay? Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay, I thought that was a lab thing, but no, if it was just, uh, if it just affects mice, that's all right. Phew, what a relief. Yeah, yeah there you go. <laughs> this is about how plate tectonics, mountains, and deep sea sediments help to maintain Earth's Goldilocks climate. Back in the Cretaceous period, we were in a hothouse period. Uh, we had an atmospheric CO2 level of above 1,000 parts per million and compare that today with our 420 parts per million. So back then, temperatures were up to 10 degrees higher. So it's kind of the scenario we're worried about right now, rising CO2 levels. The Earth's climate began to cool around 50 million years ago during the Cenozoic era. That culminated in an ice house climate in which the temperature dropped by roughly 7 degrees cooler than it is today. So there's been like a 17 degree fluctuation in Earth's life-supporting history based on the CO2 levels in the atmosphere. So the team theorized that the tectonic conveyor belt was the culprit, or at least played a large part in it, and the model they constructed indicated that in the hot Cretaceous phase, the plates were fast-moving, and so lots of carbon-containing uh, material was pushed down in the subduction zones, which caused a lot more to be released as CO2 from volcanic forearch uh, events. And the opposite was too true in the Stenozoic cooling. But it wasn't the whole story. It actually got really, it got weird. Actually. There's a lot of moving parts in this. So the plates slow down when there's friction between them. And this friction creates our super deep subduction trenches, which we love very much. And also mountain ranges as they sort of buckle and distort uh, due to the resistance. So after mountains form, they're eroded and dissolved minerals are carried down rivers into the sea, and they encourage marine production. The carbon gets locked up in marine organisms, and also as in their shells as calcium carbonate. And so that eventually forms 
a carbon-rich marine sediment. That's that's well, what was locking. Lock- yeah, there you go. That's uh, that was locking away a load of CO two systems there. Like it's all it's all happened before, and I've seen a lot of people like use that as a reason of like, oh, we don't need to worry now. It's happened before, but like vast majorities of life on earth die <laughs> like the whole idea that like if something's natural it can't be bad some terrible things are natural eye parasites are natural oh, <laughs> doesn't mean you can uh, you shouldn't stop them um there's also some really interesting work going on with uh cave ecosystems i particularly like these as fascinating parallels to the deep sea and the most interesting thing about them is when they differ from the deep sea because you'd think they'd be really similar environments so the the differences between animals deep sea adapted and cave adapted are really interesting places to look at how evolution works so isolated cave systems provide many independent uh, opportunities for cave species to specialize and evolve Uh, an excellent example of convergent evolution recent research is showing that it tends to be predictable uh, when animals radiate into a cave system, the way they adapt to that system tends to go the same way every time. So some recent genetic research has focused on the Olm, which is a cave-adapted salamander, so no pigment, no eyes. It lives for hundreds of years, and it can go years without eating. And they all colonize caves independently, and that feels a lot like our hadal snailfish. You know, they're doing it over and over again, sort of from a from a previous lineage and then end up isolated in there and radiating in their their new selected environment. So this salamander doesn't eat for years? Yes. So what does it do all day? Lays very, very still, trying not to think. I mean, if, if you don't eat, right, and you're in a cave... And you've not even got any eyes. you don't... You've got no eyes, you're not reading the book. <laughs> uh, imagine, <laughs> right, imagine if we found out they hum... Do, do you just, like... Just, <laughs> Maybe maybe they just whistle. Yeah. They whistle like an old man with a flat cap. Or maybe they just just doing some sit and stew and get increasingly like dangerous political ideologies. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> I assume they're they're rendered down to like just having reflex essentially. If a like prey thing bumps into their snout, they'll snap it up. But it comes up in the in the deep sea fish when we spoke about if they have uh, if they have memories or if they learn. Like the brain is a really energetically hungry organ i think it's a third of our energy budget or something like that so deep sea fish at least the the food limited ones tend to be really really stupid tend to have really really underdeveloped brains and so this thing it ain't thinking anything it's just existing it's probably very zen yeah it may be a a kind kind of good life yeah exists in a meditative state so that was my first question my second question is do cave animals use bioluminescence that's a genuine question. I don't, I don't know the answer to that. In New Zealand, you get the glowworms, and they use it uh, oh, yeah. to attract prey. So they, they hang from the ceilings, and they glow, and they're sticky, and bugs and things that have found their way into the cave fly at the lights, I think, looking for a way out, and they get stuck, and they get eaten. Oh, the humanity. I know. Nature's horrible. Carry on banging on about caves. <sighs> Just you wait. We'll have an episode. We'll have an episode one day. Um, so we see similar patterns in the blind cavefish. Uh, they've all lost their eyes and pigment, but different species have often lost them independently and often due to different gene mutations, which is really interesting. So the end goal seems to be rewarded with increased survivability, but it comes to pass in lots of different ways genetically. So as a result, cave adaptive species that look very alike are often more similar to their surface dwelling ancestors that can be very different looking than to each other. So even two 
two types of blind cave fish that are almost impossible to tell apart will actually be genetically quite isolated. Can I do one more story? Maybe we can generate energy from the deep sea. So generating power from difference in temperature is something we already do. Most power plants generate heat one way or another and then use it to boil water and the expansion of liquid water into steam is used to drive turbines. Uh, a more recent theory is that we could do something similar with the thermocline and areas with high surface water temperatures and access to deep cold waters. So liquids with a low boiling point like ammonia could be circulated in a closed system boiling in the warm surface waters, driving a turbine, and then being recondensed using cold seawater. Plans include pipes going down over 600 meters into the deep ocean, and the closed loop heat exchange system would always be available, so it wouldn't be like solar and wind, which uh, relies on the weather a little bit. The technology is not quite there yet. There is a pilot system in Hawaii, but it's not as efficient as other renewables. Um, but it may be an excellent choice for small island nations, which currently rely heavily on diesel for power generation. So their kind of cost-benefit analysis is different because that's very expensive, very wasteful and quite polluting. So it might prove more efficient than their current methods. Uh, so there, that was an interesting one. Hello, no one is available to take your call. Please leave a message after the tone. Hello, my name is Joel and I run the YouTube channel Magna Pinna Archive. If you're listening to this podcast, you probably already know what the Magna Pinna or Big Fin Squid is and how rare video footage of this animal can be. When I first learned about the Big Fin Squid, I was very intrigued as we don't know much about how they eat or reproduce and I definitely wanted to see some more videos of it. But I noticed that it was actually pretty hard to find footage as they were scattered all over the internet. That's why I decided to create the YouTube channel Magna Pinna Archive, which is essentially a one-stop shop for every known big fin footage. I collate this through various means, but mostly through extensive research of published academic journals, as well as speaking directly with researchers and exploration companies such as NOAA or Schmidt's Ocean Institute. I think people are often quite surprised when they stumble upon my channel and they realize that there is actually quite a lot of footage available and the big fin is not as scary as they initially thought. Probably the most famous piece of footage comes from an oil ring in 2007 where there is this ominous green tint across the video and the squid is doing its T-pose with the arms bent in that sharp 90 degree angle. It's certainly quite creepy and if that's the only video of a Magna Pinot you've ever seen I can see why you'd be scared of it. But the aim of the channel is to demystify the Magna Pinna and hopefully inspire people to find out more about this incredible creature. So maybe come check out the channel and see some more up-to-date HD footage as well as some never-before-publicly-released sightings to learn a bit more about this awesome squid. Thank you Deep Sea Podcast for allowing me to share the word about this elusive squid. Why is there so much convergent evolution within cave systems that favours the loss of eyes? So eyes are expensive to make, they're vulnerable to disease, and if they're not an advantage in themselves... Maybe you are. Maybe your eyes are vulnerable <laughs> well, to right disease. Well, right now they My are. eyes are fine, clean as whistles. <laughs> clean as whistles. But they're so, they're so quickly lost in things like the cave systems, and we're often asked by members of the public when we give talks about our deep-sea critters, people are surprised that the vast majority of them still have eyes, and some of them have incredibly well-developed eyes. Even long, long beyond any sort of solar light. Bioluminescence and the creation of their own organic light is probably the major form of communication on the planet, both between individuals of a species, but also for both defense 
and attacking prey. There's a lot of deception that goes on. There's a lot of fibs. A lot of fibs told with light. Well, I'm not going to do this interview this month, Tom, so I think it's up to you. So you're going to have to go forth and find out these answers. As Ray Parker Jr. once said in the 80s, who are you going to call? <laughs> I am going to call Edie Witter. I'm lucky enough to be joined by a bit of deep sea royalty, really. Edith Edie Widder, a very well-known oceanographer from the US with a jam-packed career of pioneering research into bioluminescence and tech development for deep sea exploration. Edie was a senior scientist and director at the bioluminescence department at the Harbour Branch Oceanographic Institute for 16 years. And during this time, she became an established submersible diver, doing over 250 dives in the Johnson New Sea Link submersible, as well as piloting the single-person untethered subs Deep Rover and Deep Worker. She currently works as CEO and senior scientist for the non-profit organization ORCA, the Ocean Research and Conservation Association, which she co-founded back in 2005. She regularly goes out on research expeditions all over the world and has recently released her book, Below the Edge of Darkness, which captures Edie's personal journey into the deep sea and of understanding our world's most used form of communication, bioluminescence. Thanks so much for coming on. Oh, it's a real pleasure to be here. I think it's important when you're stuttering something to try and forget as much of the human as possible. And so to start us off, to, to allow the listener to sort of join us in putting themselves into, into these organisms and into this habitat, could you describe the sort of bioluminescent landscape? So that was a big part of my findings was trying to figure out what the visual landscape for these animals was like. Because as you say, you want to put yourself in their mindset to be able to understand the adaptations that you're viewing. And so one of the big questions when I first started out was how much bioluminescence is there in the open ocean environment when we're not down there stirring it up? As you may know, the first measurements of bioluminescence were when people lowered photomultiplier tubes over the sides of ships in the 1950s and saw all these flashes. And there were a bunch of papers published on the spontaneous levels of bioluminescence in the ocean until somebody finally figured out that the spontaneous levels varied depending on the sea state. The rougher the sea state, the more bioluminescent flashes they were recording. And they came to realize that it was actually the photomultiplier tube bumping into organisms that were stimulating them to flash. At least that's what they speculated. So the problem is you've always got that connection to the surface ship that's bouncing up and down. And if you try to moor something to the bottom, then there are currents that also stimulate luminescence. And it turned out that the perfect way to answer that question was a little single person submersible, which was Deep Rover. And I was trained as a pilot on Deep Rover. And the first dive I made to the deep sea, that was the first thing I wanted to know was how much luminescence is there when I'm down there not stirring it up. And so it was very easy to trim it out to neutral buoyancy. You could look at the marine snow and figure out whether you're moving up or down and just get the ballast perfect, go dead in the water, turn out the lights. And I sat there with my digital watch ready to count the numbers of flashes per second, per minute, whatever it was going to be. And I sat and I sat and I sat and there was nothing. And you'd even anticipate the odd the odd thing bumping off the off the hull itself, you know, the the odd accidental trigger. But to, to see nothing for that period of time, that's really interesting. 
I, I was shocked because I had been seeing so much luminescence when I had been diving in the diving suit wasp, which has a tether to the surface. And now I realize I was stimulating the luminescence that I was seeing, but it wasn't really obvious that that was what was going on. And when I was sitting there in deep rover after a couple of minutes of complete, utter blackness, I bumped the thrusters on purpose. And sure enough, I got these vortices of neon blue light streaming out of the thrusters with all these blue sparks mixed in that looked like just when you throw a log on a campfire and the embers swirl up off the campfire. And I mean, there was light everywhere as soon as I moved. They're present all around you. They just weren't doing anything. And I, I had this instant revelation that this is a bioluminescent minefield. And <laughs> that's a big deal. So the analogy that I now give people is imagine that you're in something like the Superdome and it's pitch black. And there's apples dangling from strings from the ceiling, which means you can survive if you can find the apples. The trouble is also dangling from the ceiling are these little blue LEDs that light up on contact. So every, anytime you go looking for an apple, you're at risk of lighting these up, which is a problem because you're sharing this space with a black panther hmm. that is also hungry. So you're fine so long as you don't move. But the instant you get so hungry that you can't not move anymore, you have to go looking for one of those apples. You've got to worry about the first flash you trigger, the head of that panther is going to snap around and lock onto your location. If you think in those terms, then a lot of the things that don't make sense initially start to make sense. So you have things like shrimp and squid and fish that can squirt bioluminescent chemicals into the water, temporarily blinding the attacker while you make an escape into the darkness. And that's a lot more believable when you start thinking in the, that Superdome analogy. Um, yeah. and, and there are lanternfish that have really bright light organs on their tails that they may use to temporarily blind an attacker as they swim away into the darkness. The eyes of deep sea animals are so adapted to a, such dim, dim light, and they don't have eyelids in many cases to protect themselves from a bright light. It, it is amazing the animals that can jettison bioluminescent material. As it's almost like throwing your shadow. It's, it's throwing your appearance, and then you can you can make a getaway behind it. Yeah, and they they do it in a lot of different ways. So some of them, you know, it's just a a cloud of light. Some of them, it it sparkles and <laughs> intermittent flashes. And uh, one of the ones that intrigues me a lot is the deep sea fish Circea. It has the common name shining tube shoulder because it squirts luminescence out of a, a tube that's basically on the equivalent of a fish's shoulder. And the thing that's weird about that is that it doesn't just shoot out the luciferin and luciferase, which are the chemicals that trigger the light reaction. It's whole cells, which is very unusual and energetically very costly. And so I really want to know why that is. <laughs> I stumbled upon the tube shoulders a couple of years back and I was like, this is fascinating. There's, there's much more going on here. And then I'm raking through the literature and it's just like, no, there's, there's nothing. No one's found out anything more. Like everyone is making the comment of this isn't just bioluminescent material. This is, this is unusual material that it's jettisoning from this really specialized organ at the shoulder. And, and we, we still don't know. So well, I'm glad you brought that one up. That was on my list. <laughs> I have a very long list. <laughs> It's, it, the list gets longer the more you learn, unfortunately, but that's kind of part of the fun. We keep trying to tell people, like especially young folk who are looking at 
heading into this career that uh, it's far, far from done. There is lots still here for you to do. And we would love to pass the torch and give you our list of questions. <laughs> I think that's a really important fact to pass on because really it's astonishing how many people think we've explored our planet. That's the excuse for going out into outer space because we're explorers, we just have to keep exploring. Well, we haven't even begun to explore our own planet. I know another one of your your philosophies, and it we touched upon it there, is having a minimal impact on the animals we're trying to observe. If we went into a rainforest in a two-ton minivan and trundled along with our high beams on, ironically only looking maybe a couple of meters in front of us, we'd have a very different opinion of what it's like in a rainforest. Yeah, so I was making hundreds of dives with the Johnson Sealink submersibles as, as well as other subs. And I would always think about how many animals there must be just beyond the range of my lights <laughs> that were could see me, but I couldn't see them. How could I ever see them and know what their behaviors were going to be like? You know, these strange adaptations. How are we ever going to be able to work them out unless we can observe the animals unobtrusively? And submersibles are just so noisy and so bright and remote operated vehicles even more so. That clearly wasn't the way to get at the problem. I tried sitting quietly on the bottom sometimes, but if you think you're unobtrusive in that circumstance, you're fooling yourself. <laughs> so I got this idea for wanting to put a camera system on the bottom. That wasn't a novel concept. A lot of people were putting bait cams down on the bottom of the ocean, but I wanted to use some kind of illumination that would allow me to see the animals without them seeing the light, which we do all the time when we're observing nocturnal animals. We use infrared light and infrared sensitive cameras, but you can't do that in the ocean because infrared light is absorbed so quickly by water. In fact, water is used as a filter to filter out infrared light. And so I was experimenting with different colors of red light, and it was always this trade-off of the further out the wavelength into towards the infrared, the less illumination. There's a reason the animals have picked the wavelength they've picked. It is the best one, <laughs> unfortunately, for having a look down there. Exactly. And so I had I was using some recently developed bright LEDs six, at 680 nanometers, which is just short of infrared. In fact, it extends into the infrared on the tail. But I could tell that the animals were seeing it. They weren't being disturbed by it to the same extent as with my white lights, but they would shy away from the camera system. And, you know, when the lights came on, sometimes they'd even bolt. And mm. so I was looking around for a solution to that. And some years before that, I had been doing a spectrometry on uh, live caught deep sea animals, one of which was the stoplight fish, Aristostomius. And it is an unusual deep sea fish in that whereas most deep sea animals can only see blue light and only produce blue light because that's the wavelength that travels furthest through seawater. So you're optimizing for communication by selecting for blue. The stoplight fish can see blue light and emit blue light, but it can also emit red light from a large light organ under each eye and it can see that red light. So it uses it like a sniper scope to be able to sneak up on animals that it can see, but they can't see it. And I had been surprised when I dissected that light organ to discover that there was a filter over it that was filtering out all the shorter wavelength. If you removed it, the light organ was more orange. 
And it was really eliminating a lot of the shorter wavelengths. And so that, that was an energetically costly thing to do. It was giving up a huge amount of its energy production to eliminate those shorter wavelengths. And it struck me at the time that this must be a pretty important adaptation for it to do that. And so I just copied that filter on the I and the C illumination system and put in a short wavelength cutoff filter. And finally, I was able to see without being seen. And the first time I got to test the system was on an expedition in the Gulf of Mexico in 2004, put the camera down next to the brine pool, which is kind of an oasis on the bottom of the ocean where a lot of predators were likely to patrol. And I had wanted to do something besides do the traditional thing of just put down bait because dead bait just attracts scavengers. And I wanted to see active predators. And I also wanted to see how active predators responded to bioluminescence. So I had developed uh, an optical lure that we called the electronic jellyfish that was a ring of blue LEDs that could imitate the pinwheel display of the deep sea jellyfish Atola. And it could also imitate a number of other displays. So this first expedition where I had the new illumination system and the optical lure all working at the same time, I put it down and I had programmed the I and the C to just record video for the first four hours without turning on the optical lure, because I really wanted to convince myself that the animals weren't seeing the light. And I was ecstatic when I got the camera back and reviewed this video, because I, you know, it was a crummy camera. I had had to kludge this thing together from multiple funding sources because nobody would fund it. And I could tell, though, that the fish weren't perturbed. In fact, they would sometimes swim straight towards the camera. It was my dream come true. I had my window into the deep sea. And then four hours into the deployment, I had programmed the electronic jellyfish to come on for the very first time. I swear this is true. 86, <laughs> 86 seconds. After it's a very specific number you've got etched a, in your brain. Oh, you betcha. <laughs> exactly I mean, 86 seconds. <laughs> anybody who's spent time at sea knows you hardly ever get this lucky. 86 seconds yeah. after I turned on the uh, electronic jellyfish for the first time, we recorded a squid over six feet long, completely new to science. It could not even be placed in any known scientific family. And I could not have asked for a better proof of concept for what this camera system could do for us, because that was my problem. When I went to the funding agencies to try to get funding for this concept, they kept saying, but what will you discover? Yeah. And and that I kept keeps saying, coming up. <laughs> and I, I kept saying, I, I don't know. That's the point. Isn't that exciting? <laughs> and they sort of, they tart and they look a bit unsure. Yeah, you, yeah, it's hard to get anything funded where you can't tell them what you're going to find, which seems a bit counterproductive for blue sky science. <laughs> it's, it's very counterproductive. So anyway, uh, that video was what I used to reapply to the National Science Foundation for funding. And that's when I got a half a million dollars to develop the world's first deep sea webcam, which we installed in Monterey Canyon for eight and a half months, which was a pretty amazing window into the deep sea. We need as many eyes as possible in there. It's especially frustrating now to not see these things being funded, given that we finally, finally have cameras that are as good as the fully dark adapted human eye, in some cases better, which was not true for most of my career. Is the squid still unknown? I know this story was some, oh, some time back. Is it still totally unknown? 
we think now that that squid, um, it's, it's now been named um, based on some juvenile specimens that, that are, are thought to be related to it, and it's Promacotuthis. It was a pretty strange squid. The tentacles were a little shorter than the arms, and they didn't have clubs on the end of them. Oh, that is unusual. <laughs> yeah, it's very unusual. That's how they could be so sure that it was something so different. They shouldn't look like that. That is definitely new. <laughs> and yeah, worthy of a new family. Yeah, that optical lure has proven to be very tempting to squid in general. The following year, we put it down again with the same pinwheel display and once again saw the same squid. Not nearly as great a, sh a shot, but we did see the same squid. And then when we had the eye in the sea in, uh, moored in Monterey Canyon, we had an optical lure there as well. And again and again, when we would activate that, we would see juvenile Humboldt squid attacking it. Wow. And we got lots, lots of fantastic footage of behaviors associated with the attraction of that display. So the concept behind that display is it's what's known as a bioluminescent burglar alarm. And just like the burglar alarm on your car with the beeping horn and flashing lights, it's meant to attract attention to whoever is attacking them. So they don't use that display unless they're caught in the clutches of a predator. But if they are, then they, a lot of animals, we use every light organ they got in the most flashy way possible to attract attention. It's a bit of a Hail Mary. Yeah, it's exactly a Hail Mary in the hopes that in the scuffle, they can possibly escape. How much squid seem to enjoy the bioluminescent lure is a nice little lead into, can you describe the first footage of Architeuthis ducks, the giant squid? Must have been incredible. I would have lost my mind. Oh, I did lose my mind. They caught it on camera. <laughs> um, <laughs> I thought you were going to say they caught it and like it fell out. I like that as a visual. <laughs> <laughs> Almost did. So I was not a giant squid hunter by any means. I mean, all of us marine biologists have certainly heard the, the stories about the giant squid. And we, we make jokes about it when the net comes up ripped to shreds. <laughs> <laughs> the typical line is giant squid must have been in there, but never imagined going after a giant squid. But I had this video of the Humboldt squid attacking the electronic jellyfish over and over again. And I showed it uh, the first TED talk I ever gave, which fortunately I had no idea what TED was when I gave that talk, <laughs> <laughs> or, or I think I'd have freaked out. But um, Mike Degree was there when I made that presentation and he was a giant squid hunter. And so he, he got typically excited as only Mike could and <laughs> said, you know, do you think this would work for the giant squid? And I, it hadn't even crossed my mind, but I said, yeah, I think it might. I mean, we're talking about the biggest eyes in the world. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I think they're probably adapted for seeing bioluminescence. So I could imagine it might actually work. And so it was Mike that got me invited on this television-funded expedition off Japan in 2012. Sadly, Mike didn't get to participate because the, the original expedition was supposed to be 2011, got delayed because of the tsunami that year. Uh, and then during, at the beginning of 2012, Mike was killed in a helicopter accident. Um, so he didn't get to participate in what he actually precipitated. And I almost didn't go uh, on this expedition because I had been on a television-funded expedition once before 
and swore I would never do it again. <laughs> I think we could share some stories, probably. Oh, my God. Uh, I, I it's know, a I, different I, beast, isn't it? <laughs> it's a complete, uh, you know, there's nothing about getting the science done. That once they get their visual shot, you know, we're moving on. Never mind that there's some wonderful piece of science staring them right in the face. And so I, you know, I mean, I had a good time. It was a, it was a good, it was a fun expedition. We were the first oceanographic vessel allowed into Cuban waters. And oh, so wow. it was, it was a pretty amazing expedition. And, uh, but I, you know, I just said afterwards, that's the last television funded one I'll ever do. Anyway, uh, when Mike invited me, uh, it was at a time when funding had decreased to the point where it was becoming almost impossible to do any submersible diving. And as a result, um, a couple of colleagues and I, uh, Sanka Johnson and Justin Marshall and I had, after our last Eye in the Sea expedition, discussed how we might develop a lower cost system that we could deploy from the ship without having to use a submersible or a remote operated vehicle. And so we developed a version of the Eye in the Sea that we called the Medusa because it could either sit on the bottom or float around in the midwater. And I had been trying to get it ready for uh, an expedition to Costa Rica, but there were some delays in delivery. And so I, I missed that window and I had no opportunity for deploying it and didn't see any. And so what Mike was offering me on this Japan expedition was six weeks at sea. And I just wanted to be able to throw the Medusa off the back of the ship let it float around for a day or two, pick it up and review the video. And I thought, well, you know, even with television, I should be able to do that. <laughs> and, I, and I had this concept of just kind of fading into the background because Mike was great on camera. He was always so enthusiastic. He was, he was the guy they wanted on, in the shot anyway. And so that would be perfect. And so when it turned out, you know, Mike wasn't going to be part of this expedition, I came perilously close to just deciding I wasn't going to go because um, I, I didn't really have any contacts out there. I didn't know the people involved. I didn't know the pilots of the submersible or the submersible operation. It's a measure of how desperate I was to get back to <laughs> deep sea <laughs> that, I, that I did actually go. And of course, now I'm enormously glad that I did. And uh, it was actually the second deployment of the Medusa, but the first with the electronic jellyfish because the we hadn't it hadn't gone through its pressure test. So I had one deployment of the Medusa without the e-jelly and didn't see much of anything. And then the second one with the e-jelly got the first video ever recorded of a giant squid in its natural habitat, which had been kind of I called I sure on. do like that lure. Oh, <laughs> like it, it, just, it doesn't just work. Lure. It really, really works. Really, really works. <laughs> And we saw, we had four sightings of the giant squid with the Medusa on that expedition. To and go I, from zero to four in one expedition. Yeah, well, actually, <laughs> it ended up being five because um, we also got the amazing high resolution footage that was shot from the Triton submersible. And that was using red light illumination, which I had convinced Kubadera, the chief scientist on the expedition, to try. And we had low light cameras and then he had an optical lure attached to not my e-jelly, but just a squid jig attached to a big diamond back bait squid. And that brought in the giant squid. And once it had started feeding, he risked turning on the white lights. And, it, you know, once it's a hierarchy of behavior, once it had a meal, it wasn't going to let go of it. And so mm. we got 
20, I think it was 23, 26 minutes of high resolution video of a giant squid, which was just incredible. And I think most people listening and certainly I, I know exactly the piece of footage that you're, that you're talking about. It's infamous. And, and <laughs> they, Yes. And they showed us as we were reviewing the video because they had cameras rolling all the time. They caught the moment when we, when it came on screen and I just absolutely losing our minds. <laughs> and the, but then, you know, with the video from the submersible, the squid was just so different than we expected because my camera was black and white. And so we didn't get any sense of the color of the squid. And we were all kind of expecting red because that's what dead what dead specimens are. Yeah, the moribund ones that turn up are, are usually a deep crimson. Yeah, the, this wasn't. It was. It looked like it was carved out of metal. It brushed aluminum and then bronze. It would switch back and forth and just so. I was going to ask you if that was a trick of the optics because yeah, it look it looks iridescent. It looks it has this sheen to it. Yeah, no, that was that was what it really looked like. It, it was just amazing. And then one other little side note from that, we got after the after it left, we recovered the sub with the bait squid still attached. And looking at the bait squid, it just had these little delicate nibbles out of it. <laughs> and, and, you know, we have this image of a giant squid as this ravenous beast. But like yeah. all squid, it's got this weird evolutionary quirk where its gullet runs through a, its donut-shaped brain. Gotta and take so little they, bites. Gotta take <laughs> little bites or you're going to have the worst brain headache you ever can imagine. So it's nibbling like it's corn on the cob. It's very yes. de delicate little nim 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 <laughs> from such a beast. But it's it's still, that's still awfully surprising because, yeah. you know, these things can grow as tall as a four-story building and they're not known to be long lived the way some giants of the deep sea are estimates well you know squid often live only 3 to 5 years the doubling time would be just crazy the longest i've seen i think was 14 years um, which to accrue that much mass in that environment as well where you don't in have that a great deal of material I mean, that's that's the weird thing about the midwater compared to benthic living organisms. Food accumulates on the sea floor. Yeah, you can't miss it. It has to stop. <laughs> but in the open ocean environment, we're talking about a, a, a food density of a few grains of rice in a cubic meter of water. And so you got to sieve a lot of water, which is why so many of them use mucus in various ways to create big webs to to be able to get the food they need. One of the questions about the giant squid was, is it an active predator or is it a sit and wait predator? And I, I always assumed with an eye that size, it was an active predator, but you know, there were reasonable arguments for why it might be a sit and wait predator given the amount of energy that needs to be expended. Those initial videos showed it attacking the electronic jellyfish. And then we, Got to use the Medusa again in 2019 and got the first video of giant squid ever filmed in U.S. waters in the Gulf of Mexico. And in that case, it clearly, the giant squid was stalking the e-jelly for several minutes before it attacked it. I've seen that as well. It's sort of tentatively coming out of the darkness and it's opening its arms a little bit and then backing off. Is that, am I it. thinking of the right footage? Yeah. That's the footage. Yeah. And and it doesn't seem like a monster at all. It just seems kind of shy. There were some other examples as well, wasn't there? Of You observed some different behavior of fairly well-known deep sea animals, but without white lights, without sort of disturbing them. You 
did record some other unusual pieces of behavior. I, I heard one about the six skill sharks. Oh, I, yeah, I think we, we can lay claim to quite a few of those, um, as well as things we still haven't identified. One of my favorites was on an expedition where we had the eye and the sea down, and I was using a different display from the um, the e-jelly, um, which was just a single LED flashing, and it would flash, and then something out in the water would flash back, but it, <laughs> it would it would leave a string of dots in a circle, like a spiral circle. And so it was the best example I ever had of feeling like I was talking to the animals. I don't know what I was saying, but I think it was something sexy. <laughs> yeah, if you get sort of friendly responses. The, the amount of behavior that must, that must be coordinated through this is a mode of, of communication as well. I'm, when I'm sort of trying to preach to people about sort of thinking about deep sea animals in the right context, even when we have an amazing specimen, and people are sort of like, oh, this is horrible looking, look at the teeth on this fish and things like that. You're still not seeing it in the right context because that's not how they appear to each other. To each other, they're a beautiful light show and they're tantalizing smells and they're probably sound as well. They're probably vocalizing. It's a very difficult thing for us as fruit hunting mammals to imagine, really. So I, I love stuff like that. Yeah, I do too. And I agree, we have to have more cameras in the ocean, more eyes in the sea to be able to have any hope of discovering what these animals are doing. So some of my favorite examples are the gulper eels that have a light organ on the end of its absurdly long tail. <laughs> and it's it's called a gulper eel because it's got a, a mouth that looks very much like a pelican. The concept is, is it dangling that lure in front of its mouth yoga style? <laughs> How are we ever going to find that out? There's so many fragile elements to a lot of these animals, even known species possessing structures we didn't know they had because they're so fragile. How can we decode what these structures are for when we're, we're only getting glimpses from, from quite damaged corpses, really? Right, exactly. Especially with the jellies, their fragility is such that some of them actually disintegrate just under strong white light. <laughs> Yes, yes. It's almost like you've got to catch them out the corner of your eye. If you look directly at them, they uh, they disappear. <laughs> Explode. <laughs> yeah. I've got to ask about the wasp suit and what that was like. If it feels like we've, or at least as far as I'm aware, we've moved away from that kind of technology, the the sort of very personal suits. But that must have been incredible. Could you could you describe that? Well, it was especially incredible because it was actually my first introduction into the deep sea. I'd never been in a submersible before. And so wasps... Straight into advanced level. Yeah. <laughs> With a, without a co-pilot. <laughs> no, no, I had to be trained as a pilot. It was uh, the idea of Dr. Bruce Robeson to try to use this suit that was actually developed for the offshore oil industry for diving on oil rigs down to 2,000 feet to explore what was then and still is the least explored habitat on the planet, which is the open ocean, the midwater. And so we got trained in a tank in Port Wainimi, and then my very first dive was in the Santa Barbara Channel. It was a late evening dive, and they just dunked me down to 800 feet, which was just to make sure that I wasn't going to have a claustrophobic meltdown. The reason I was doing this, because I wanted to see the bioluminescence that I'd heard described, but nobody could photograph. It was just <laughs> verbal descriptions was all I had of what it was actually like down there. And uh, so, you know, I went down to 800 feet and turned out the lights, and I was prepared to dark adapt to be able to see the bioluminescence. Absolutely no dark adaptation was necessary. <laughs> I, I was in the middle of a fireworks display that just absolutely took my breath away. That moment changed the course of my career because I actually had a postdoc lined up in neurobiology 
which was what I was planning to do. But I just couldn't believe that there was all of this energy being expended in the ocean and nobody was studying it, Mm. not in the ocean. And I just had to know more. And I turned down my postdoc and ended up staying on in bioluminescence. And I'm very glad I did. What a fork in the road. You, yeah. you sometimes only see these looking back, but you're like, wow, it, it all pivoted on one opportunity on speaking to one, like the right person at a conference or just one little opportunity totally changes the course. One of my favorite animals is the cookie cutter shark. And I wrote a paper about the cookie cutter shark that I'm actually quite proud of, but there's no great story that goes with it because <laughs> I, I didn't observe a cookie cutter shark. Uh, I've never seen one alive. But I was writing a review article about counter-illumination and how animals have photophores on their bellies that they use to match the downwelling sunlight to obliterate their silhouette. And I was talking about the different spacing and size of photophores. And then I came across this cookie cutter shark, which had the finest grained counter-illumination pattern of any that I was looking at. The photophores were so tiny that you couldn't distinguish them. It was it was absolutely perfect counter-illumination, perfect camouflage. They were a 4K TV and we were all on standard def. Exactly. But, but it ruined it with this black band right behind the mouth, which made no sense. Evolution doesn't make that kind of mistake. It was <laughs> just, it had no photophores and it was darkly pigmented. And interestingly, it kind of had a fusiform shape, which is the shadow of the search image of most deep sea upward looking predators. They're looking (laughs) for the shape of a small fish above that it can attack. And the cookie cutter shark has eyes on the side of its head so it can see an attacker coming up from below. And the reason it's called a cookie cutter shark is because it was known that it takes cookie shaped hunks of flesh out of fast predators like swordfish and tuna and dolphins go to a fish market in Japan and the, see the tuna lined up, there are these cookie-shaped hunks, hunks of flesh missing from some of them. And it had been shown that those hunks of flesh were in the stomachs of these, these sharks, hmm. which is how they came to be called cookie-cutter sharks. But the question was, how the heck could they get close enough to a fast-swimming predator like a tuna to be able to carve out a hunk of flesh? Well, I put forth the idea that they were using aggressive mimicry and it was uh, using the bioluminescence to obliterate their own silhouette and recreate a much smaller one that imitated that of what many of these predators were looking for. And since cookie cutter sharks are known to school and vertically migrate, it all suddenly made sense that they had this strategy that allowed them to bring big predators in like tuna. And sometimes the tuna come in with multiple bites. So, you know, going through a school of these little sharks must be like going through a swarm of killer bees. A nasty little gang who uh, lure a much larger predator and then they all sort of double back and take a bite out of it as it flies past. Yeah, they actually use the forward momentum of the tuna or whatever to oh to facilitate their little their little spin cutting motion their little spin because it it, it, it's like a melon ball cutter i think they're amazing i have one on my shelf right here next to me (laughs) for company doesn't everybody yes (laughs) we we all would if we could it's really interesting as well when so many things use use light as a lure they use light to create a shadow they're using a, a negative lure in fact exactly 
That's very, very cool. There's a lot of deception. There's a lot of tricks being played in this uh, in this medium. Once you can harness and manipulate your own light and your own silhouette, you can pretend to be something else, maybe a lot easier than in a lot of habitats. There's a massive evolutionary arms race going on here. There must be so many things we have no idea about. We have no idea about the interactions. Absolutely. There's so many bizarre light organs that I know must have fantastic stories attached <laughs> to them, but we're not going to learn what those stories are until we can sit and observe for extended periods of time without scaring them away. Yeah. I know at least in the, the esker or the lures of um, anglerfish, they seem incredibly specific and some seem to, to mimic specific animals. Some are very squid-like. This incredible career and a lot of these incredible stories have formed your recent book, which was released last year. Yes. Below the Edge of Darkness. It, it's a memoir, which is something I never, ever imagined writing. And uh, as I explain in the acknowledgments of the book, I was approached by a literary agent after an article about my research appeared in the New York Times. And he asked if I'd ever thought of writing a memoir. And I said, no, go away. <laughs> and, and then when the giant squid documentary came out, he, he called me again. And he had a really good pitch about how I had seen things nobody had ever seen and I should be able to share them. And I said, but I don't know how. I'm a scientist. We're taught never to write in the first person. I have no concept of how to write a memoir. I went back and counted and I had over 40 emails from him. Over <laughs> he the wasn't next... going away. <laughs> he wasn't obnoxious about it. He just, you know, said, have you read this memoir? Have you thought about this? And, and so he finally kind of wore me down and I thought, okay, I'll give it a try. And so one Christmas, I just took a couple weeks and just tried writing in the first person. And then I, you know, did an outline and we went back and forth and stuff. And after about two years, I had something that he thought was worthy of a proposal and we put it in. And actually, um, a lot of publishers were interested, went with Random House, which um, they've, they've been really good publishers. Um, and I, yeah, the whole thing has just been kind of astonishing <laughs> to me. It wouldn't have happened without Farley Chase, who was a literary agent. We're trained essentially in reporting science to remove the self, because of course we don't want any bias. You know, we, we have statistics essentially to, well, hopefully remove all possible sort of personal interpretation. And we're very we're very adept at removing ourselves. But when it comes to communicating that science, uh, it really pays to show a little bit of humanity. And I think because of the way we write often, we're, we're sort of seen as emotionless and a little bit cold. And, and unfortunately, that's just scientific writing. Nobody falls into this. Like there's, there's far easier jobs that pay a lot more. Everyone is here because they love it. Uh, but we almost are a little bit shy about sort of waving our arms around and saying like, but this is so cool. <laughs> Yes. And it's, it's really cathartic once you start. You get a bit of carried away. <laughs> Absolutely. One little silly question at the end, just because it's something that came up on a, on a previous show. Sure. What do you think of the sort of creative license used in a lot of documentaries where bioluminescence is given a twinkly or electronic sort of sound effect, uh, where a lot of things are ejecting things as a sort of smokescreen. Um, me and Alan were arguing that actually it might be more realistic to use a fart noise <laughs> <laughs> and how different the, the documentaries would be uh, if that was the case. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm game. I think that's, that would be fine. Um, what, one of my concerns about the documentaries is they sometimes don't get the luminescence that they want to get. So they fake it yes. and they, and they fake it wrong. And that has bothered me a lot. And there's, there's a lot of misinformation out there as a, as a result of that. And others, you know, if you type in 
bioluminescent jellyfish, one of the ones that pops up first is one that doesn't even exist. It was created by an artist. Then I think somebody did a Photoshop on moon jellies at one point to make them look bioluminescent. Now everybody thinks moon jellies yeah. are bioluminescent. They're not, but I see that one repeated. So they're you taking know, a stock it's, image it's and very, uh, made it look like it's glowing. And oh, that's close enough. One jelly is the same. And then there's folks that, like us at home yeah. writhing on the sofa, just like, no, no, no. <laughs> Do you know how long it takes us to undo that thing you've just shared? <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And for many people, it's the only information they ever get about bioluminescence. And so for it to be wrong is is upsetting. Yeah, because it's meant, it's meant to be a reliable source. You know, they're, they're, one of the things that irks me most is when people are trying to gain knowledge and trying to learn. And yeah, they're, they're fed wrong information. Right. Thank you so, so much for your time. Take care. Bye-bye. Greetings from the Gulf of Mexico, everyone. It's your salty sailor correspondent, Larkin, coming to you live from about 100 miles off the shores of Louisiana. I heard you all were talking about bioluminescence today, and that just so happens to be involved in one of my favorite salty tales. Our story begins late one evening while working on an expedition vessel in the Gulf of California. Now, if you haven't been to the Gulf of California, Jacques Cousteau dubbed it the Aquarium of the Sea in the 1960s for good reason. You all, it is teeming, teeming with life. Whales, dolphins, manta rays, sharks, squids, a ton of fish, as well as a multitude of seabirds. It is definitely a nature person's dream to be there. That paired with the stunning landscape where dramatic mountains and desert terrain meet sparkling turquoise seas make this one of my all-time favorite places in the world. And people ask me that a lot, like where, where are some of your favorite spots uh, that you could pick? that are the most beautiful in the world. And definitely the Sea of Cortez, aka the Gulf of California, is by far one of the most dramatic, dynamic, beautiful places in the world, especially if you like uh, snorkeling, scuba diving. It's just, it's incredible. So we are on the Sea of Cortez. It is around 1 a.m. on the 232-foot small adventure cruise ship that I was currently working on. And while the guests are peacefully sleeping, I'm quietly going through my nightly safety rounds. I'm checking gauges. I'm down in the engine room, all that good stuff. When the mate driving the ship yells over the radio, Tron Dolphins, Tron Dolphins, quick to the bow. I dropped everything that I was doing at the time and just got to the bow in a flash. Now, why was I so excited? And what are Tron Dolphins? Well, let me explain. A Tron Dolphin... And that is T-R-O-N, like the movie Tron. Tron dolphins are, um, are a special name that we've given this situation. When I stepped out onto the bow of the ship, I first stood still with my eyes closed for about 10 seconds. And that's a pro tip for adjusting your eyes to pitch black areas super fast. It's great for stepping onto dark bridges from bright rooms at night. In case anybody was wondering why I'm just standing there with my eyes shut on this bow in the middle of the night. <laughs> okay, so I step onto the bow and then my eyes adjust. When I open my eyes, I scan the black waters in front of the ship. From one o'clock, I spotted my first brightly green torpedo heading straight for the ship. And then another one coming in hot from 11 o'clock. Zoom, zoom, zoom. Then there was another one coming in from nine o'clock and another from four. They were everywhere. You see, a Tron dolphin is a dolphin that glows so bright in the bioluminescence 
luminescence underwater that it almost leaves tracers when you spot them coming to your ship at night, especially when the bioluminescence is really raging. The best part was looking at the bulbous bow, though. Now, what's a bulbous bow? Well, that is the protruding bulb you'll see under the water surface on the front end of the ship. Normally not a sight to behold by any means, but when nature turns the bioluminescence up, this part of the ship goes from a regular hunk of metal you can barely keep painted to a gorgeous underwater disco ball with glowing dolphins dancing and flipping around this thing. It is nothing less than magical. Now you understand why I rushed to get that radio call. It didn't happen all the time, but when it did, it was very celebrated. For more salty tales like that, head to my YouTube channel, My Salty Sea Life, or to my TikTok, or to Instagram, and all of those are going to be linked in the show's notes. See you all next time, and stay salty out there. You did a fair bit on bioluminescence in your early days, didn't you, Alan? With uh, Jessica Craig. Certainly did. Yeah, I did a few things with bioluminescence. And all sorts of interesting uh, applications as well. One of my postdoc positions that I had before I grew up was uh, in astrophysics as a deep sea biologist in an astrophysics project called KM3Net, which is, stands for Kilometer Cube Network. And this was a, a project whereby they wanted to deploy something in the region of 10,000 photomultipliers in deep water that spanned a cubic kilometer volume. And they were sort of mirrored or mirroring lines, and the idea was over the 10,000 photomultipliers or PMTs, uh, they could detect neutrinos coming from intergalactic cataclysmic events, or whatever the phrase was at the time. But neutrinos are subatomic, so you can't see them and you can't detect them any other way, but you can detect where they've been. And where they've been is when they hit a sort of a dense medium like seawater, they give off muons, and the muons give off a Cherenkov radiation which is a small blue flash. So these things are, you know, these networks were going to be absolutely massive. They're looking for tiny little nanosecond bursts of blue light. The problem they had when they did a lot of the, the trials of the test mirrors and stuff like that was Cherenkov radiation happens to be 480 nanometers. 480 nanometers in wavelength is deep blue. It also happens to be bioluminescence. So if you put down a structure, a static structure in moving water, anything that's drifting with the water will hit the static object and quite a lot of these things will get spooked and give off a flash. So the story goes, they, they, they rigged one off France, which I uh, did quite a few jobs down off Marseille back in the day. It's gone right back in the day, but we used to rise out in this little boat and do these bioluminescence profiles and what was happening was the tennis switched it on rather than seeing tiny little nanosecond blasts of Cherenkov radiation from some cataclysmic event in space. They were, they're all their photomultipliers are completely saturated with bioluminescence. Mm. So I ended up spending two years going around the Mediterranean looking for absolutely nothing, trying to find a dark spot, trying to find a place. Because the Mediterranean's like so so much less productive than the, than the actual open ocean. So it was like, that's a good starting point. So then it's like, well, where in the Mediterranean is actually dark. And what we found was, eventually what we found was off Greece, off Peloponnese. Spent a lot of time in a little village called Pilos, which is cool. Beyond 3,000 metres, there's pretty much no bioluminescence at all. Uh, and down that area, the, this is where Prince Albert eventually dove in the sub, is about close to 5,500 metres. So the bottom 2,000 metres certainly is dark. It's staggeringly deep, just right off Pilos, right off this little town. Because they were th- thinking of putting a cabled observatory there as well, weren't they? Because it's it's so deep, so close to that. That was it, yeah. That was part of it. It was one of the candidate sites. It was, they were arguing over whether or not to have it off France, off Italy or off Greece. So yeah, I spent two years running around looking for nothing, <laughs> looking for no bioluminescence. It was a fascinating thing to work on. Yeah. It's great. Loved it. Yeah, you ended up on some uh, on some very like complicated sounding papers. 
I am. I'm, I'm on a paper which has got something like three hundred authors. <laughs> I think I'm author, author number two hundred and something or whatever. These astrophysicists yeah, are really generous. They like they like to gather in big groups. They form flocks. Yeah, it was about Fermi bubbles at the Galactic. That Center. was it. Was the Fermi uh, bubbles one? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I don't, I don't, I have no idea what this is about. But thank you for, thank you for putting me and half the population of the planet Earth as an author. But I still don't know what a Fermi bubble is. We did all sorts with that old camera. It's called an ISET camera, intensified silicon intensifier target camera, or ISET. It was cool. Loved it. Shame I trashed it in the end. I was there when uh, Jess put that in her ROV, and we made a an impromptu little brush, basically, and she was gently brushing this protonaceous coral and it was just it was lighting up it was like she was painting it with fire and through the camera it was just lighting up as uh, as she sort of tickled it with this brush and made it annoyed uh, it was really beautiful stuff it like revealed a whole other aspect of the deep sea hello this is don walsh oceanographer explorer and a former submarine officer in the united states navy my title for this uh, Sea Story broadcast is Why Submariners Do Not Like Marine Life. A submarine's primary advantage is stealth, and we work hard to avoid detection. But that can be compromised very easily, even by life in the sea, because our eyes in the sea are actually our ears. So for the purposes of this uh, story, I define marine life as those organisms that interfere with sound in the sea. They can be either sound emitters, that is, they make noise, or they can be targets, that is, they can obstruct and absorb the passage of sound. In any case, these living organisms can sometimes make submarining very difficult. Well, what are some of these effects? I know these are things that I've mentioned in some of my previous broadcasts, but I wanted to sort of summarize them here in total as how they can affect uh, submarining. The first probably is uh, they're noisy. Uh, so many of these uh, uh, critters make uh, active biologics, we call it biological noise, and uh, that can make you partially deaf. Not a good idea when there are adversaries nearby. However, that's not all bad because if there's enough of that noise in the sea, uh, the other guy has trouble finding you. So you can sometimes hide in that noise if you know where it is and uh, how it uh, tends to make it difficult for others to find you. Another negative effect is bioluminescence, where light-emitting organisms, plankton, illuminate the outline of your submarine while you're submerged so that an aircraft looking down can uh, easily uh, see you if you're near the surface. And there's a related problem of false torpedo tracks. When you're on the surface at night uh, and looking out, all of a sudden you see a, a streak, a lighted streak headed straight for you, uh, that might make you uh, a little excited, even though it's later found that it's just a bunch of friendly dolphins streaking in to see what you are, maybe play alongside for a while. And then there's the problem of uh, false depth indications through the deep scattering layer, which can cause... Uh, navigational confusion showing that the seafloor is much shallower than it should be on the charts. And finally, there's a loss of performance with marine growth on the hull of the, your submarine. If you've been submerged, say, for two months, you can accumulate a whole lot of marine growth, which results in a speed penalty through the drag they 
provide as you're trying to pass through the water. Not much of a problem today for modern nuclear submarines, but diesel-powered submarines are operated by many of the navies in the world, where they operate mostly on the surface and therefore are subject to the penalties of loss of uh, range due to uh, fouling of their uh, hulls. And also, a covering of uh, biological material on your hull is uh, another way that sound is attenuated, thus decreasing what you can hear nearby. However, I must admit that in my 15 years in submarines, these problems rarely cause difficulties. But one difficulty may be too many if you're close in with an adversary. Well, do I complain too much? Probably. Now, many decades later, and at my age, this is one of the joys of being a senior citizen. And also, there's my Irish heritage and that of a being a lifetime as a sailor. Both of these groups, or cultures, if you will, are great storytellers. This means over time, our sea stories tend to get embellished, dramatized, and even increased. But most of them have some element of truth. And now a final comment. I don't eat seafood. Why? It's a social contract. In other words, when I'm on land, I leave them alone. And when I'm at sea, they leave me alone and serve me well. I'm not sure there's much truth there, but I like to think so. Well, that's it for now. And thanks for listening. Uh, hey, folks. So I'm Georgia, and I've recently just joined Armatus as their new science communicator. So yeah, I'm going to be here taking over their social media accounts and uh, hopefully convince Alan that it's not a complete waste of time. I'm going to be helping with the outreach and the content creation and uh, with the podcast too. So all the fun stuff that they're uh, that they're getting up to. I am a few years younger than the boys. So despite the blank stares I get when I mention Instagram stories, I do know what TikTok is. I do have a master's degree in mineralogy, so I have a bit of a sciencey head. But um, I've also done some like environmental nonprofit work in Mexico, so I have a bit of conservation experience in the real world too. I'm super excited to be on board. Can't wait to see what adventures like arise from working with these two. Um, we'll see if I survive it. Come say hi on uh, any of our social media accounts. That's where you'll find me. And one of the first ideas that she had, which made a lot of sense is to include a sort of concentrated version of this podcast. So less of our hilarious chat where we think we're funny and just the condensed science. So if you find an hour and sort of 20 minutes, a little bit much to commit to in the same feed, we're also going to have a condensed version of the podcast, which is just the, the sort of core science. I'll try and get it in at sort of more like half an hour, maybe 20 minutes. Um, so if you don't have time to listen to the whole Why podcast... Why don't we just cut you out of it? Or just cut me out of it. Well, we were having a really hard time of coming up with what that should be called. So would you like to help right now us pick a name for the condensed version of the Deep Sea Podcast? The abstract, right to the point, just the science... Too Long Didn't Listen, the Deep Sea Podcast Sensible Cut. I, I don't think we can get away with this one, but this was actually George's suggestion. Just the tip of the Deep Sea Podcast. All right. <laughs> Not sure we can get away with that one. Deep Sea Concentrate, nice double meaning for the word concentrate there. The Deep Sea Podcast Pressurized, the Deep Sea Podcast Imploded. Do you like any of those? No. Cool. Okay, we'll see you next month. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, sorted. sorted. We'll deep see you next time. And I have this you already. Oh, yeah.
The Deep Sea Podcast is supported by our company, Amatus Oceanic. If you'd like to explore the deep sea for yourself, we can provide the technology and know-how to allow you to do that. Or if you'd like to bring the deep sea to your audience through storytelling, fact-checking, or presentations, we can help with that as well. We want the deep sea to be accessible to everyone. Fermi bubbles are two enormous orbs of gas and cosmic rays that tower over the Milky Way, covering a region roughly as large as the galaxy itself. These giant space bubbles may be fueled by a strong outflow of matter from the centre of the Milky Way. So if you imagine the Milky Way is a big plate and you put a football, soccer ball, whatever, on top and below that plate, those are the Fermi bubbles emanating from the galactic centre. Whoa. I was, a, I was an author on that paper. This fit... Or something to do with those. This feels very... Di- <laughs> this feels very Discworld. This feels very... It's turtles all the way down. So basically the Fermi bubbles are the turtles holding the plate. 